Previously on the 32nd Timeout Podcast. Like, come on, there's not just one Canadian team in the playoffs. The NHL playoffs? There's not just one Canadian team, is there? Is there? Oh. I just want to set up the context for all future discussions about the Blue Jays by saying that this is not a playoff team. I think Alex Anthopoulos did a great job. I think he made all the best baseball moves he could, but his biggest mistake will come down to the fact that he did not go out and throw money at guys this summer, no matter who they were, just to make a run here. Because you're in a situation where you're just going to be mediocre. Michaela is calling it. It's going to be Chicago, Boston, in the Stanley Cup Finals. With oh, Chicago taking it. That's I can it. hear That's the here. criticism You already. heard it here first. <laughs> you heard it here first. Here with everyone's favorite NBA analyst, Matty Ice. Matt, thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks again for having me. It's not like I've seen you enough this week already. Hey, feelings be true. Do you have a uh, a champ in the West that you want to declare right now? Who do you, who do you think is going to move out of the West? You said your champ in the East was the Indiana Pacers. If it comes, who would be playing them? In the if it comes down to it, if I have to give you an answer, Oklahoma City. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Really appreciate it. And anytime. Uh, we'll probably I mean, we'll probably talk to you next week. Yeah, for I really sure. Have, <laughs> I have no other analysts apparently. So it's just you. you are listening to part one of the Thirty Second Timeout Podcast for April twenty fifth. 2014. I keep thinking about those times you ran away and I can't get it out of my head. We keep drifting cause you keep floating away. I can't believe all the words that you said. I keep thinking about those times you ran away and I can't get it out of my head. We keep drifting cause you keep floating away. I can't Hey, welcome to the podcast. My name is Colin Schreider. I am your host. I have a jam-packed episode for you today. And you heard me say in the opening to Matty Ice that he was my only analyst. Obviously, I was lying. I had Michaela Schreider on last week talking some hockey. If you haven't heard that yet, go back and listen to it. She gave us some great analysis for the playoffs, getting us set for the NHL playoffs. I will talk about them a little later on, but I want to mention the fact that I do have more analysts I have two more analysts coming in to talk baseball and Champions League, as well as the British Premier League, with me on this podcast. I'm very excited to have them on. Before I get to that, I want to talk about some of the other sports that I haven't had a chance to talk a lot about, mainly uh, basketball and football. Then we'll talk some hockey, and then we'll get into the guests that I have for you today. So we'll start off with football, and I really want to talk about, I really want to talk about how I don't think the NFL should be talked about right now. <laughs> not in the not in the 24/7 news cycle that ESPN is putting together. I appreciate all the effort and analysis they're putting in to getting their people ready for the NFL draft and obviously they're a network that needs to put stuff on all the time. But if anyone is telling you how the NFL schedule and some of these matchups are going to look later on in the year in September, October, November and December when these games are being played, just tune them right out. Nobody knows how these teams are going to look at that point in time of year. The NFL is a crazy league. Let's look at the Houston. Let's look at the Houston Texans, the Kansas City Chiefs. Houston Texans, a playoff team, two years ago, last year, two and fourteen. They had a stellar defense. They had weapons on offense, but those weapons just couldn't seem to play together. Matt Schaub just kind of lost his step, lost his swagger. He had a rough year, and that led to the Houston Texans downfall to two and fourteen. On the flip side of that, Kansas City Chiefs, two and fourteen, two years ago, last year, eleven and five making the playoffs on the back of Alex Smith and a stellar defense. 
you don't know how these teams are going to look, how they're going to be playing next year. The St. Louis Rams of all teams could all of a sudden be a, you know, a 13 and three team. You don't know how pieces are going to come together. You don't know how other teams are going to lose players to injury. So at this point in time of the year, just look at the schedule, see when your team is playing and look forward to it. Don't look into how they're going to be playing at that point in time. Don't look at how these matchups are going to fare. There's no point. It's all conjecture. No one knows what these teams are going to look like. Similarly with the NFL draft, no one knows when players are going to go. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what these teams are thinking. Now, there are, there are insiders that might have a track, but I think a lot of these teams put out a lot of smoke screens, like that they didn't like Teddy Bridgewater's workout or that he had a terrible pro day, so they get him to fall in the draft so they can pick him. It doesn't mean they like him any less. It just so happens that they, they kind of want to throw it out there so he falls to them. I think there's some analysis that's useful in the NFL draft, but knowing exactly where these players are going to go I think is kind of ridiculous. Like mock draft, the idea of a mock draft is just kind of silly. I think rating positions, like the quarterback position, is definitely interesting right now. And definitely pay attention to, you know, breakdowns of, you know, the top five quarterbacks are because it seems to change week to week, certainly. And I just don't think that you should pay much attention to who is going where when people are talking about the NFL draft. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. Sticking with football, kind of. I want to talk about the Northwestern football team, NCAA unionization. NCAA president Mark Emmerich came out this week and announced that the NCAA was no longer going to have the food restrictions that it had in the past, and that Division I NCAA athletes scholarship or walk-on will be entitled to unlimited food. That might seem like not a big deal to you, but it should be. The NCAA up to this point has put restrictions on the amount of food that schools were able to give their scholarship athletes. A scholarship athlete was only allowed three meals a day, and walk-ons had to pay for their own food. And this is, comes on the back of, of course, the NCAA unionization announcement with Northwestern's football team wanting to unionize. They will have a vote sometime. And then from there, we'll have to wait a few months before we before we get the result of that vote and whether or not that team is going to unionize. Further to that, after the, he won the national championship with UConn, national basketball championship in the, in the NCAA, Shabazz Napier, the star of that game, the championship game, came out and said that he and his teammates often go to bed hungry when asked about the Northwestern unionization efforts. So on the back of this, the NCAA has decided to get rid of quote-unquote their stupid rules that Mark Emmerich called them. And now they're going to have unlimited food for their students. A couple things. Obviously, after he came out and said unionization was not the way to go, and he's further gone ahead and said that there's going to be significant changes in the NCAA over the next couple of years, Mark Emmerich's going to do his best to get the people on his side by giving his scholarship students, not only giving them the unlimited meals and snacks, but also that he's going to come out and call these rules that they had in the past stupid, despite the fact they've had these rules since the, he started his reign in 2010 and the 35 years before that that he was a president at Washington. So I don't think that, I mean, obviously this is a PR ploy. They don't want them to unionize. So what they're going to do is they're going to try to get everyone on their side by giving them unlimited, unlimited food. And maybe they'll go further than that. I hope the next step is giving them health plans, but the health plans aren't going to go far enough because the men and women, especially in the lap, let's talk about the basketball, the men and women that play NCAA basketball are going to have joint issues for years to come. So how far is the NCAA going to put their physiotherapy beyond the years 
after they've left the institution? How responsible are they going to be for the health of their players that they made millions of dollars off of after they've left their schools? The, the NCAA won't go far enough, obviously, because you know the uni- they're not going to meet the unionization demands. Otherwise, unionization wouldn't be a problem. So they're trying to get people on the side of the NCAA because the NC- the, a lot of people at this point in time, I think, feel that NCAA athletes and getting a free education are already getting enough. They're getting a lot. They shouldn't be given any more. And I think that's wrong. A lot of these players, as I've said before, wouldn't necessarily be going to school because they couldn't afford not only the schooling, but the lifestyle that comes with schooling. So now they have the lifestyle that comes with schooling that they can't afford while they're going to school and the schools are making millions of dollars off of them. I think that's really wrong. The NCAA's plan then is to win over the court of public opinion by portraying these kids and what they are getting as already being spoiled, as already getting enough, and the unionization is going to tear down this institution. They're going to get fans of the NCAA on their side. The fans will feel as though that the NCAA has given the athletes enough, even though they're making millions of dollars for these players playing essentially for free. And they will win over the court of public opinion while at the same time appeasing factions of the athletes by giving them a little bit of what they wanted, but not necessarily going to the extent that they should, given the amount of money that the NCAA makes off of these players and given the long-term mental and physical effects that these players feel in the years to come. And that is what the NCAA has started the process doing this week by giving them unlimited food. Obviously, this goes a long way for a lot of students, but I think this is part of the NCAA's greater plan to kind of to win this battle. They want to win this battle. They want to minimize the damage. The best way to do that is win over your fans and appease factions of your athletes, of your employees, frankly, quite frankly, your employees. And that's what the students' athletes are. They're employees that are playing that are taking part in this institution for essentially free. I'm going to call it free. I don't care if they're getting education. I don't care. A lot of the time they can't afford anything else outside of the education. They can't afford the food, as Shabazz Napier says. They can't have jobs because of the NCAA regulations. And this is the result. This is the result. And it's too bad. And you know they're not going far enough yet. I don't think they will go far enough. And anything short of unionization for the athletes, I don't think is going to be sufficient for making sure that they are covered in what they deserve. Kind of sticking with basketball. Now, this isn't, I don't really have a transition here. I don't have a segue from NCAA unionization to NBA basketball besides that. I mean, did anybody watch the Raptors game? That had a college atmosphere. The people outside of the ACC. Uh, Raptors lost game one uh, after a ton of fanfare inside and outside of the stadium. And one of the things that happened that I thought was awesome was Masai Ujiri in his speech to the fans outside the ACC dropping the F-bomb. He said, F Brooklyn. And this for me was incredible. This for me was... This was the feeling of a lot of Raptors fans heading into the series. And to hear it from their executive was amazing. And frankly, Brooklyn deserves it. Tanking, tanking. Uh, tanking going into the playoffs so that they played the Toronto Raptors. They deserve an F-bomb. They deserve it. And more so, the refs and the NBA deserve an F-bomb. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Well, I talked a couple weeks ago about how I felt the NBA was somewhat of a crooked organization 
and the way it was formed and how they only have eight NBA champions since David Stern took over 30 years ago. And one, <laughs> it was interesting for me this week after game one was that the disgraced former ref, Tim Donahue, came out and was on the Jeff Blair show on uh, the Fan 590, and they talked about what should be a hot topic around Toronto, and that's the refereeing in this series. There's been some questionable calls in the first two games, especially late down the stretch. And he basically broke down, Tim Donahue did. Now he's a disgraced former referee. But I feel that empirically and logically, what he said makes a lot of sense. Essentially, he was saying that having the Brooklyn Nets around in the later rounds of the playoffs is awesome for TV ratings, especially more so than any of the ratings that a Toronto Raptors game would get. That makes sense. The Brooklyn Nets have known names. They have Kevin Garnett, they have Paul Pierce, they have Joe Johnson, and they have Darren Williams. And for you Utah Jazz fans, they have Andre Karolenko. They have names, and that's big for the NBA. That's the kind of team that they want having in the later rounds of the playoffs. And the interesting thing for me was when people say that this team was built for the playoffs, they mean that they have experience that when it comes down the stretch, you know, like in the did in game one, Paul Pierce takes over, hits a bunch of shots, they get the wins. No, I think they were built for the playoffs, and they have the star power to get the superstar calls. And this is kind of what Tim Donahue was saying, was that, he, you know, if you look at it, the league office definitely wants the Brooklyn Nets to move on from the series so there's an opportunity for them to play you know the Miami Heat or the Indiana Pacers pretty clearly this is probably what the NBA wants and they actually what he says the mechanism of how the NBA decides what they want to do in a given game is that the league office actually sends a representative to go and talk to officials they send a representative from the league office to go and talk to officials before games about what they want to see called in a game they review game film. So if they're reviewing game film, and this is the example that he gave, if they're reviewing game film and they say Kyle Lowry is hand-checking Darren Williams, we want this called, the refs are also graded on how they then go out and call the game based on the information they were given by the league representative. This is all coming from Tim Donahue, former official with the NBA. So the league sends a guy from the league office with instructions to the officials about how they want a game called. And if they say... You know, Kyle Lowry is hand-checking Darren Williams, we want this called. Or, in the example of what happened at the end, the end of Game 2, Paul Pierce is driving the lane, he's getting contact, you got to call that, even if he's just getting tapped on the arm, like he was and was called. The officials get graded on that, and then those grades dictate whether or not they get games in the later rounds of the playoffs. Which is very lucrative, obviously, for those officials and their career moving forward. That is that is the mechanism I was talking about when I said that the league was rigged. That is the best way. I mean, that's smart on the NBA's part. If you want to dictate and set up some pretty ideal matchups, that's the way to go about doing it. And this is what I said. The league is the only league where they give points away for penalties. And they do that a lot. That Paul Pierce drive to end of Game 2, and the Raptors took Game 2, 195. And the tweet I sent out was, thank goodness the rim is the only thing that the refs and the NBA can't control, eh, Raptors fans? Because, my goodness, the refs did their best to make sure the Brooklyn Nets stayed in this game. The Paul Pierce drive down the lane, yes, he got a layup. He should not have gotten that extra point to make it a three-point game. He should not have. 
the charge, the DeMar DeRozan charge on Andre Blatch. Andre Blatch literally ran over Amir Johnson the exact same way down the floor before, and that was a that was a blocking foul on Amir. And now they come down exact same play, and it's a charge. It didn't make any sense. So I think that the when you're watching the series, understand that the NBA does not want the Raptors to be successful in their efforts to move on in the playoffs. And I want you to watch these calls, and I want you to be as frustrated and angry as I have been watching these first two games. My goodness, this league is crooked. Just watch the refing in these games. And if it's a close series, if this comes down to the game seven, the Raptors are going to lose on a close call at the end of the game. Because the, the refs dictate momentum. They get you the fouls you need when you're having a bad, bad trip down the floor. So I just, the refs are going, this is, the biggest factor in this series is going to be the refereeing. Hands down, not a question. Keep your eye out for it. And just, if, if it's actually the case, if I'm right and it comes down, the Raptors lose on a close call, on a referee call at the end of a game seven, do me a favor and don't tune into a single game after the NBA playoffs. Nobody in Canada should be tuning in. No Raptors fan, no decent Raptors fan should be tuning in to any other games of the playoffs. And we'll just try to get those TV ratings down that the NBA craves so much. So I think the biggest factor in this series is obviously the refereeing. The second biggest factor has been the Raptors' turnovers. And I think that a side note on that, and what I think they should be doing, is they're not running the floor a lot. Is They they're seem to be happy in setting up in this half-court offense. And, you know, when it's... Raptors versus Dinosaurs is the Toronto Star put on their front page, referencing the age of the superstars that the Brooklyn Nets actually have. When it's Raptors versus Dinosaurs, you should run the floor as much as you can. They've been doing the Brooklyn Nets a favor, the Raptors have been, by coming down and setting up in this half-court offense time and time again. You don't need to do that. You have speed. Run down the floor and try to get some transition layups. And they haven't been doing that. And this is a strong suit of this game, you, this team. You're young. When Jonas Valanciunas brings down a rebound, fire out an outlet pass, and run the damn floor. They haven't done that. I don't understand why. And what has happened is that the Brooklyn Nets have been had all the time in the world to set up a half-court defense. And they've been forcing the Raptors, the inexperienced Raptors, at this stage of the playoffs. None of these guys have that much playoff experience. DeMar DeRozan's never been in the playoffs. You've been giving this this inexperienced team the opportunity to go up against a half-court defense that has Kevin Garnett centering it. And Mason Plumlee has been huge for this team, too. Like, why are you doing that? Run the floor. Run the floor. You're going to... You have an inexperienced team they're going to make mistakes in the half-court offense. And that's been the story for the Raptors. They've turned the ball over at an exponential rate. They're turning the ball over every third time down the floor, pretty much. Run the floor. It's pretty simple. They don't have the speed in their first team with Kevin Garnett, Joe Johnson, Paul Pierce, and Darren Williams on the floor. They don't have the speed to keep up with you if you run the floor on them. And it just seems that the, the Raptors are completely content to uh, set up in a half-court offense. And what's happened is that when they get big leads or they're attempting to come back against this Brooklyn Nets team is that they just go into one-on-one basketball and it's DeMar DeRozan. Now, obviously, that worked last game because DeMar was 
you know, he had ice in his veins and he was hitting shots like no tomorrow and down the stretch he was huge for this team. But it just seems like this is a team that's built on being a team, on ball movement. Like as soon as they trade away, like when they struggled early on in the season, Rudy Gay and DeMar DeRozan were holding the ball. They were taking the shots. It was one-on-one basketball. They trade away Rudy Gay. They start playing team, team basketball. They start up, up their assist count. And they started being successful. And it seems like when they get down against this Brooklyn Nets team, they feel the need to start playing one-on-one. And it's just not working out for them. It's just not It's just not how they're supposed to be going. They should be ball movement, moving the ball around. a lot. In a way, they should be emulating what the Brooklyn Nets are doing. Now, I think the Brooklyn Nets have been so successful in moving the ball around and finding open guys because of the inexperience of the Raptors. They seem to be very jittery when they come out to try to, to shut down a guy like Paul Pierce. So they seem to be they seem to be giving Paul Pierce, Darren Williams, and especially Joe Johnson a lot of respect late in games. They certainly if they give him a pump fake, boy those Raptors bite. And I would just say to you, let them take the shot. Let them take the shot. And contest it. Contest it with your feet on the floor. You don't need to be jumping at to swat the ball as much as they are. They've been very jittery. And they've given a lot of respect to these players that I think they don't necessarily need to give. And that's been one of the reasons why the Brooklyn Nets have kept this game close, is that the Raptors' inexperience and their youth and their kind of shock at the star power of this Brooklyn Nets team has led to them being very jumpy on defense and has led to a lot of buckets that have kept the Brooklyn Nets in these games and have basically won the Brooklyn Nets some of these games. So I think that's something the Raptors uh, you should look out for in this series. The, the, the Raptors should be running, running the floor, transition offense, because I don't think the, the Brooklyn Nets at their age, being dinosaurs, have the defense in their first team to be able to stop the Raptors flying down the floor that they have so far. And I think that, you know, you need the Raptors to be playing more team basketball and on defense certainly being a lot less jumpy and just letting these guys shoot the ball. I don't think they're as good shooters as the Raptors are making when they jump up to try to swat away all of the Brooklyn Nets shots. So just something to look out for in this series. Look out for the refereeing and also how the Raptors go moving forward. I think there's some aspects of their game they should probably work on that if they just fix these little things, like being a little less jumpy, that they would definitely be more successful in shutting down the Brooklyn Nets team on defense. Obviously, the other playoffs that are going on right now without a Toronto team is the NHL playoffs. Sorry for bringing it up again, Toronto fans. And the interesting thing for me in the playoffs so far has been the amount of overtimes. Like, geez, Murphy. We started off, we had the three overtimes in the St. Louis-Chicago game. And, like, every game in the Penguins-Columbus series feels like it's going to go to overtime, no matter what the lead is. And it just kind of shows you the amount of overtimes and how long these overtimes have been going, what the NHL could be like if they didn't have the shootout. And it's it's kind of a magical world, isn't it? It's kind of in the way that I felt like when we came back from the Sochi Olympics, the NHL should really consider expanding the ice service. That's how I feel about this playoffs and the shootout. Like this is the greatest evidence there is for why the NHL should, you know, I wasn't really opposed to the shootout until I saw all these overtimes and how freaking awesome it is. <laughs> I was never really that much opposed to the shootout and wrapping up games in a certain amount of time. But boy, overtime is fun. So I really want to get, you know, I really want the NHL to think about fixing the shootout format. I don't think they should get rid of the shootout altogether. Um, I think that, you know, I ripped on the NHL for not, you know, for going to the GM meetings and not talking about expanding the ice surface and da 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 all that stuff that would limit injuries and headshots and 
better protect these million dollar investments that they're making. And they're going there and instead of talking about all those issues, they're talking about, you know, what we should do with the shootout and how do we fix face-offs, which is just kind of gimmicky. But that all being said, I know I think they should seriously consider <laughs> getting rid of the shootout after seeing how awesome these overtimes are. And my, uh, you know, I'm just going to throw my suggestion in the hat there and it would be, you know, 10 minutes of the, the long change. So the second period ice format, uh, you play 10 minutes of that and then you go to the shootout. That would be my suggestion of how to, it doesn't extend, you know, the amount of time that you have. You can keep the four on four all you want. You know, this four on four, three on three, you know, it just kind of gets real ridiculous at the end when it's three on three. I mean, sure, it'd be fun, but you're going to gas out a lot of your players, especially if you're on the back end of a back to back. Might just be better to give up at that point. You know, wouldn't you feel like a lot of teams, if they had to get down to playing three on three hockey and they had another game, they had to fly to another city to play a back to back somewhere else? That they would kind of just give up. They'd say, ah, oh, screw it. We're just going to sit in front of the net. We're going to do three on three, but we're just going to stand still right in front of our goalie because we don't want to waste our legs and we're going to just play for the shootout and hopefully win in the shootout. Don't you think that'd be the case? If it came down to three on three? I just think that opens up a whole new can of worms of teams strategizing to pick up points and playing for the shootout that you know they didn't have with four on four. So I think you stay with the four on four format. I'm not even that opposed to five on five to be honest, but I think you should extend the time to ten minutes. Make it that second that long change scenario that you have in the second period. The majority of goals in the NHL are scored in the second period. Uh, that's the statistic, and that's because of the long change and how awkward it is for a lot of these teams to deal with. And I think that the best way to uh, get some of these goals going in the early on of the overtime would be to have that long change. And I think extending the overtime period is also a good idea too. That's just my two cents on that. Uh, further, one of the things that on the uh, administrative side that I found really interesting this week was the suspension of Brent Seabrook. And a lot of people saw this hit, and it was an ugly, ugly hit. The hit Brent Seabrook on David Backus, and it was dirty as can be. Like Seabrook, like Backus didn't even have the puck. He's uh, turned around. Seabrook just throws his entire body right at Backus's head. Backs is knocked out on the ice. He tries to get back up. He's falling all over the place. It was an ugly hit. Uh, Seabrook gets three games. Now, I was okay with that three games. I, I, was, I thought that was fine. I thought that was fair. Three games of playoffs, you know, that's a, that's a long time. And, you know, his first-time offender. You know, he's well, not first-time offender, but he hasn't been a dirty player per se. And there was the Matt Cook hit that kind of changed my mind on it. Because Matt Cook, you know, okay, he stuck his leg out and he need a guy. And that guy's out for a while. And that's a seven-game suspension. Okay, I get that Matt Cook has been a guy that has had a bad past, and he's really, he's had some bad, bad, really bad, actually, incidents in the past. But seven games, like, what's the NHL trying to say here? If they're going to try to really take on headshots, which I think is the direction they should go, I mean, are you prioritizing the knee-on-knee over the jumping at and hitting you in the head? I don't know. It's interesting. Or is this a case of, you know, superstar call? You know, Matt Cook's kind of just a grinder guy who's been dirty for a while and he's not necessarily a, a necessary cog of the team versus a guy like Brent Seabrook, who's the backbone to a certain extent of this Chicago Blackhawks franchise. Has been for a while. Him and Duncan Keith and Jonathan Taves. And he's part of the core. He's part of the core. Three games for a guy in the core, that's pretty harsh. But, I mean, seven for kneeing someone? I think if you want to prioritize headshots and keeping, you know, trying to legislate concussions out of the game now that they're actually facing some lawsuits as they've come down a couple weeks ago, you kind of want to give 
more of a suspension to the guy that's laying people out unconscious on the ice, don't you think? So I think the fact that Matt Cook suspension came after, it's hard to judge the Brent Seabrook, but certainly I think that it would have been interesting if Matt Cook had done what Brent Seabrook did to David Backus. I also feel like this idea of, you know, first-time offender stuff should also kind of go out the window when we're dealing with headshots. This idea that, oh, well, it's it's Matt Cook, let's throw the book at him, versus, oh, it's it's Brent Seabrook, let's just give him three and end this discussion. He's a necessary cog, and he hasn't really done this much in the past, we should probably get rid of it. No, I think you should just generally try to legislate headshots of that nature, of the Brent Seabrook nature, out of the game. And by giving a guy who need another guy more of a suspension than Brent Seabrook, Looks kind of bad, doesn't it? Just legislate headshots out of the game is all I'm saying. If guys are lying unconscious on the ice, as David Backus was, throw the freaking book at them no matter who they are. That would just be what I say. That's my two cents on that. I'd like to congratulate the one Canadian team in the playoffs, the one Canadian team that actually managed to get into the playoffs, uh, the Montreal Canadiens. I want to congratulate you on that domination of the Tampa Bay Lightning. That was a very, very impressive performance from that team. I will say that I think that if Ben Bishop was in in Tampa Bay's net, it would not have been as big of a as big of a blowout of a series as it really was. I mean, it's probably about as big of a blowout series as you can get in the playoffs and uh, the Montreal Canadiens looked really good and a lot of teams should be fearing that Canadiens team uh later on in the playoffs, certainly. I'm ho- I, I'm I'm very excited for Boston Montreal. Is going to be a hell of a series, and uh, if there was one team in the playoffs that I could pick to upset the Boston Bruins, it would be the Montreal Canadiens. There's a lot of bad blood there, and they have that backbone of a goaltender that is certainly necessary in the playoffs to get you to the next level in Carey Price. Now, I don't know if I believe in Carey Price yet, and I know I'm saying that, and it's a little crazy, but he, he does struggle at times, and he didn't look necessarily the best as he did in Game 1, but he's certainly in the later half of that series. Uh, he looked pretty good. And he makes a lot of stops. So, But I think that the Montreal Canadiens, if Carey Price can get really hot and can get to the level that he was playing at in the Olympics, I think that the Montreal Canadiens are the team that can take down... The, they're the David that can take down the Goliath that is the Boston Bruins. I'm not going to go as far as to cheer for them, but I'm definitely going to watch that series and check out uh, what the... I, I don't know if I can cheer for the Canadiens. I would that would really get put an ego on some of my friends that already have a bit of a Canadian's ego, so I won't cheer for them. But I will definitely watch that series. And uh, you know, well, the Boston Bruins are one of those teams you just kind of hate, eh? They are one of those teams that you just kind of hate. So I might go as far. I won't cheer for the Montreal Canadiens, but I'll kind of just be on their side, per se. I don't know if that's any different or not, but definitely would like to see the Boston Bruins take a nosedive. Uh, and I think that the Montreal Canadiens are the team that can go about doing that. Uh, a lot of other great series, a lot of other great hockey series. We're going to break that down next week. Probably going to have Michaela back, if not somebody else, to break down the matchup. So I'm not going to talk about what's been going on in the series as much here. This isn't the week to do it. As I said with the NFL, NFL schedule, you don't know how things are going to play out. And honestly, in the NHL playoffs, you have no idea how things are going to play out. Who would have said that the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Pittsburgh Penguins would be tied 2-2 in a series because I definitely would not have uh, predicted that at this point. Although a lot of people 
have a lot of doubt about Marc-Andre Fleury and the Pittsburgh Penguins team. So there's probably a few people out there that would be thinking to themselves, yeah, that's the Columbus is the team who can take down Pittsburgh. And uh, interesting thing is when, you know, the next round goes, if Columbus gets past Pittsburgh, they can go on quite a little run here. Because next up, they got Philly or the Rangers, and those two aren't necessarily the strongest teams in the world. Uh, so a lot to talk about in the NHL, but I won't talk about it this week. I will talk about it next week. It's going to be a fun podcast. We'll break it down. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to transition into baseball. Very excited for my next guest. Pleased to be joined now by a man who has written about the game of baseball for Bleacher Report. He's a Jays season ticket holder for two seasons now. He's played, coached, and umpired. And most impressively for me and why I have him here today, he's been to 12 major league ballparks. Ladies and gentlemen, Mitch Davidson. Mitch, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing pretty well yourself, Colin. Thanks for having me. Do, doing well. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, as a Jays fan, Jays season ticket holder, I want to get your sense of how this season has gone for the Blue Jays so far, just to fill in any anybody that uh, that hasn't had a chance to tune in yet. Yeah, so um, if you thought there were a lot of question marks going into last year, there's, there's even more right now. Uh, this is a team where they've been, I don't think there's any other way to say it than just damn close to putting it all together, but at the same time, close to letting it all fall apart. Uh, there's been days where the starting pitching has been fantastic and days where they, they can't make it out of the third or fourth inning. Um, but overall, we've seen a lot better defense, uh, a little bit better hitting, and uh, looks like things have come around. They're playing pretty well so far, and, and they're close to first place, which is really all you can ask in the month of April. You brought about, you, you mentioned the starting pitching. What, what is your take on R.A. Dickey pitching every four days in between... Uh, in between Morrow and McGowan. Yeah, see, that's an interesting one. When I uh, I first started really following baseball, I always questioned why um, the teams with a good four always put in a really bad fifth. And uh, the answer is there hasn't been a four-man rotation since really the 1980s. And I don't think R.A. Dickey can go every four days. Um, no, definitely not. To me, the beauty of the knuckleball is the fact that people haven't seen it. Um so what I mean by that is if you look at where he has trouble, it's mainly when he gets into the third time through the lineup because, right. you know, guys see a 97-mile-an-hour fastball the day before, and then they come in and it's a 75-mile-an-hour knuckleball, and they look like idiots. But, you know, when they've seen it for six, seven, eight, nine pitches, they start to get a handle on it. And uh, if he's going every four days, mathematically, you're just the guys are going to get used to it, and they're going to see it more and more often. So I think it's kind of... Uh, him being a little bit more rare is a bit of an advantage for the Jays. So I would keep him every fifth, if possible. Um, the, the one other thing I'll say about uh, what they've been doing so far, because he has been pitching almost uh, every four days, is just the fact that uh, they've lined up the schedule so that he can pitch indoors as much as possible. Which Right, definitely. They have this, I don't know if it's proven or not, I haven't looked into it as much, but they have this theory that he's way better indoors than outdoors. And uh, if that's the case, then then go for it as much as possible. But it, it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because he, he's really struggled at Rogers Center last year, and you'd think that the wind would play more with the knuckleball when he's outside. Like I, I don't know what their logic is behind this. Do you kind of understand it? Yeah, uh, for me, the the, only, the one number one thing that I've ever heard when R.A. Dickey has a bad start or when he has a really good start is uh, I either couldn't control it or I could. Um, it honestly seems like it's a pitch that he goes out there and throws every five days and doesn't know if it's going to move left, right, up, or down, let alone <laughs> the hitter. So um, maybe indoors. Makes, it makes, his, makes his catcher really feel like he 
like he's doing his job well. He's no idea where the ball's going. Yeah, that's why he's wearing it's a vacuum ridiculous. on his hand every time he goes out there. Cause it's <laughs> uh, it's a pretty impossible thing to do. Makes you really feel for Arian Sebia and how uh, last year's opener started when the when he just had every ball going back to the backstop. Yeah, uh, for him that was um, that was kind of like pushing the snowball off the hill, and <laughs> it just uh, it kept rolling. So a little bit. It was a bad year for Arian Sebia. Uh, keeping with the pitching. How do you feel about Drew Hutchinson so far? Yeah, see, this is this to me is the interesting one because uh, out of all the Jays pitchers, minus maybe um, Brandon Morrow, I think he's got the best overall stuff. Um, great velocity um, in the first couple starts, especially out in Baltimore, he was hitting the outsides and it was pretty ridiculous. Um, but the problem is that, and Greg Zahn says it every time, and I, you know don't like it as much but he's kind of right in this case is it's all about fastball command um mm-hmm. that pitch can get hit any any major league hitter can hit a 97 mile an hour pitch if it's right down the middle uh, right. but if it's on the edges down the way that kind of stuff they can't hit it so for drew it's more of a it's a, a problem of he's got the stuff but can he pitch it where he's supposed to and so far he's been doing that um but who knows if he can keep it up it's his first real full season so we'll have to see about that kind of stuff Especially with how the Jays have had like struggled so badly at handling young arms in the past, uh, do you think that he's going to be able to sustain a career as a Blue Jay, giving this chance so early? Because there's a lot of guys that have flamed out as Blue Jays, and really the only success story I can think of off the top of my head in terms of proper Jays development has been Roy Halladay. Yeah, uh, you mentioned it last week on the podcast when you uh, you briefly went over the Jays stuff, kind of setting this up. Uh, you, I think you threw out there who's the last real pitcher to come up through the system and uh Roy Halladay is definitely the, the prime example Ricky Romero is the other and we all know what's happening to him right now being a triple a so <laughs> yeah uh, he's not exactly the best uh best example of a success story yeah I I, <laughs> I don't really know what's going on with him and and you know that's a mystery and, it, and it's sad to see but uh location for him as for a guy like Hutchison the, the question is you know if you look in the rotation right now there's this weird sort of juxtaposition where your number two starter is a guy brought up through the system where you're asking, man, can he avoid injury? And your number five starter is the guy who went through all the injuries in McGowan and now is back. So, And he's the other, the only other Blue Jays pitcher that's ever come through the system, really. So, really? It's it's sad. You you know, you've got like, it. I don't want to say it because I don't want to jinx it, but you've got Drew Hutchison and then you've got what Drew Hutchison could be in eight years. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's true. It's true. There's, there's something to be said about... Um, about injuries in Toronto. I mean, I think they were overall last year second um, in the league, as in second most man games lost to injury. Um, they, there's something going I'm honestly on there, su- I'm not sure what that I'm is. I'm honestly surprised they're not four and away first, to be quite honest. Yeah, um, but, you know, I mean, all around the league now, just to take this, you know, sort of look at the big picture, there's guys losing. Uh, I think we've had... 16 Tommy John surgeries already this year, something like that. So it's yeah. it's it's a quite a lot, um, and and guys who've never had history of it either. So you're losing big names like Chris Medlin and uh, Josh Johnson just went down, and Matt Harvey, and you know. So there's there's some uh, some big guys. Clayton Kershaw's got elbow problems that are just not able to make it. So we'll see when it comes to Hutchison. But for now, you know, keep rolling them out there. <laughs> We're we're speaking of injuries, and one of the like one of the things for me that has to uh, do with this J season and how injuries can plague this team is it's a bit of an X factor for how this team's success is this season. 
What are your X factors for the Jays to be successful yeah, uh, this season? That's that's a great question. Uh, for me, the number one is overall team defense. Uh, last year, the errors were what killed us. And, you know, um, it might be one error that, you know, the guy doesn't come around to score, but it just turns the lineup over. And, you know, it just seemed every time in the ninth inning up came David Ortiz or Chris Davis or Evan Longoria when you didn't need him to come up. And if you don't make that error early in the ball game, he doesn't get that opportunity. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. So for me, it's it's defense, and uh, part and parcel with that is the guys in the bullpen. Um, if they can pitch well, the defense will do well. It's kind of, you can't have one without the other, but defense is number one. Um, on top of that, there's a couple things that are minor um, that I think people overlook. And the, the first of those, um, there's just two for me. The first is the health of a guy like Adam Lynn. Everybody talks about, you know, Jose Reyes, can he stay healthy? Um, when Jose Batista goes down or uh, they look at a guy like Drew Hutchison or McGowan and they start to contemplate because these guys have had Tommy Johns or whatever the history is. But right. a guy like Adam Lind is is somebody who's so crucial to that lineup, having a power lefty who can split it up, he can bit, bat in the, uh, in the fourth spot, and he's got these histories of back issue. And He, he just went on the DL again uh, in Cleveland and he's out for 15 and maybe more. And uh, to me, it's it's a whole different team without him. So... That, that is one that people often overlook. And the other one, which is just interesting to note, is so far uh, John Gibbons hasn't gotten instant replay challenge right. Um, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I think he, he's 0 for 5. He might be 0 for 6. I'm, I, I'm not sure uh, if he uh, challenged tonight. But um, the point of that is it, it's, it's not enough to you know make or break a season, but it is enough to say, you know, maybe there's some morale boost. Maybe you get an extra run on the board. The uh, When the Yankees came to town in the opening series, uh, there was, I'm not sure if it was the uh, Friday night or the Saturday night game, but uh, Ichiro beat out a liner. Joe Girardi challenged, successful. Ichiro ends up scoring. Another guy scores behind him, and Jays never get those runs back. So it's just... Huge, huge momentum. That's swing. exactly what it is. And uh, it's not like there's been a lot of plays where you go, oh, he should have challenged and didn't, but... Um, it's just interesting that they have all these camera angles and these people in the dugout and they still haven't gotten one right. So that's just a little nitpicky thing at this point here. Taking all these X factors that you've, you've said, and I think they're very pointed and uh, quite really on the ball. Uh, if you put all those together, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm pretty sure you heard my assessment of this J season and what it's going to end up as, which is a, not a playoff team. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you think that there's pieces here and X-Factors here that can come together and turn this team into something that I don't see it being? Um, as a guy who goes to almost, you know, 60 or 70 games a year, I would like to disagree with you, but I really can't. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry, right, Mitch. I'm right. sorry. I made the investment, not you. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, that being said, crazier things have happened. Um, did I think this team was going to be where it is 20 games in? Not really. But... Uh, for them to finish above 500, I don't think is is too far out of the loop. The other thing is you got to look at the teams around you. I mean, mm -hmm. Tampa's exactly. Matt Moore's done for the year. Alex Cobb is having injury problems, so they're losing their pitching, which is their biggest asset. Um, and you know, if the defense can hold up, they, they might have a shot. But for me, the biggest thing in, in looking at um, is this a playoff team or not would be how they do on the road, specifically in Tampa and in New York. Those are two places yeah. where last year they they could win. I mean, they haven't won a series in Tampa Bay in something like seven seasons. So 
if you ever want to get over the hump, that's how you have to do it. And uh, I don't think they're a playoff team, but I think if they can pull out a few of those series and in Tampa or New York, they might just be knocking on the door for a wild card. There was no hope for this team uh, two winners ago. There was no no hope of this team being a playoff team. Then Alex Anthopoulos went out and made a blockbuster trade that changed how this city and most of Canada felt about this team's playoff hopes. And in light of that, they've been pretty much let down over the last two seasons. Uh, how do you feel about all the moves, specifically the trade with the Marlins that Alex Anthopoulos did two years ago? Uh, do you see that as uh, something that was good for the city, for the team? Or has this really just kind of brought the team into something that they were not ready for? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a good one. I mean, I got caught up in the hype, too. Last year was the first year that I got the season tickets. So, you know, right. it's not like I'm immune to it. Um, but the trade makes sense. I think you said it last time that, you know, everybody was excited. Everybody thought it was a good deal. And, and looking back on it, it still is. Um, Burley's paying off pretty well. He's everything you expected. Reyes, when he's healthy, is great. Shouldn't be that much of an issue. Uh, the the thing last year was it it was an incomplete team. You know, we had a, a half a team that was playoff worthy and a half a team that wasn't. Um, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So you know, you have those rookies in there, those guys like Emilio Bonifacio playing every day. Like he might be a good guy to have on a bench for a playoff team, but he shouldn't be your starting second baseman. It, it's it's those kinds of things. If you look at the teams that win or go into the playoffs, you know, they don't have a lot of holes. They have very few unproven guys. They might have kind of like, you know, your grinders or your um, you're sort of like John McDonald types or whatever might have you. But we had a mystery mm-hmm. in second base. We had a catcher who never really put it together at all. And we had some pitchers in that rotation or in the bullpen that just shouldn't have been there. Um, we were a couple pieces away from really putting it all together in a bad start. And, you know, it was just a, a season of everything that could ro- go wrong did. Um, but on, on the other hand, the guys we gave up, yeah, we gave up some good pieces, but if you want to win, you've got to make those kinds of deals. And, uh, it definitely worked We had 2.5 million fans, something like that last year, which was, uh, the most that they've drawn in a long time. So, you know, they, they needed that kind of boost on, on the business side. It definitely helped. And, uh, maybe there's some money there that could be, you know, used in the future. And one of the things that for me has been the strangest thing about the Jays team this year and you mentioned that they lacked a few pieces that would put them over the over the hump and make that last season a successful season. And those were pitchers and the money they brought in from last year. They didn't go out and spend on pitchers this year. Do you see this as the Jays reaching their spending ceiling or kind of a hesitation to take, take a chance again, again like they did two winters ago? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought this up because if, if you didn't, I would have. Um, <laughs> so the Jays have this sort of odd theory where they won't sign anyone for over five years. Um that, it works with certain guys. So, for example, Batista and Edwin Encarnacion, those were guys who wouldn't be where they are without the Blue Jays or without, you know, Alex Anthopoulos or whoever taking the chance. So those guys, right. they're loyal. They're like, yeah, I'll, I'll sign five years and nothing more. Or R.A. Dickey's 39. He's not going to sign a 10-year deal, right? So those, in some scenarios, it works. But if you want to compete with the free agent market, you really need to provide that security for guys. Um and they didn't do that. So they lost out on a lot of the big arms, and they will lose out on big arms again next year, like Justin Masterson or John Lester if he hits the free agent market, because they won't give them more than five. Um, but on top of that, so they decided we won't do it. They waited, they waited, and Irvin Santana pops up. This miracle, he says, okay, I'm looking for a one-year deal, and, and it works perfectly for the Blue Jays, right? Exactly. You're thinking one-year deal, 
pay them whatever you want. Who cares? It's, it's not a long-term investment. You need those arms. So two things happen. The first is Chris Medlin in Atlanta uh, blows out his arm literally the day that Irvin Santana verbally agrees to a contract. So Atlanta now jumps into the pool and says, hey, we'll pay you that. Um, so now you've got somebody who he can go elsewhere. Uh, so that really mm-hmm. just timing kind of sucked for the Blue Jays there. And taxes as well from uh, Santana having to come to Canada, yeah. which is always something it's something I talk about a lot. But taxes definitely uh, fit in with something like that, especially on a one-year deal. Yeah, and you know what? Like That's why the theory is you might have to get some of those guys through trade because Jose Reyes, his contract over the whole term of it in Miami compared to Toronto – is something like $20 million in taxes. So, uh, yeah, really it is. It's, it's a big deal. But the thing that really shocks me is Rogers is one of the biggest um, sort of owners with capital. It's one of the, the richest owners in the league. Um, Scott Boris, he's a you know famous uh, agent for some of, the, some of the bigger names, mentioned this and kind of ripped into to, uh, the Rogers organization for not buying some guys. And here's the thing. So... The NHL lockout costs Rogers a lot of money in TV revenue. They lost out a lot with, you know, all their Sportsnet West, all that sort of thing. Um, and the theory that they keep saying, what everybody keeps saying, is that the baseball budget and the hockey budget are separate. But they also spent, you know, what what was it, $5 billion or something on the TV rights? 5.2, yeah. 5.2 billion. So try to tell me when an organization spends $5.2 billion from their sports department that the Jays still have money to spend. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, it's true. not really there. And the proof to this, which not a lot of guys are talking about, there's a couple columnists out there that are mentioning it, but when they had a verbal agreement with Irvin Santana for one year, just one year, it was $14 million. In order to make that $14 million happen, they had to get five current players to agree to take a pay cut. They filed it with, really? they filed it with the MLB Players Association and got approval. Five players. So that was like Batista, Burley, Reyes, Encarnacion, and I believe the other um, might have been Melky Cabrera. And so, Why have I not heard about yeah, this? The, this is, are you serious? I had no idea. 100%. Uh, Ken Rosenthal, I'm pretty sure, was the guy who... Uh, who oh, well, then so, it's true. Yeah, it's fact. 100%. <laughs> so, you know, here's an organization that, like, I mean, you know how much Rogers makes. I'm sure you have a Rogers bill. I have a Rogers bill. And Oh, I don't want to talk about yeah. it. They're they're asking Toronto Blue Jays players to take a cut so that they can afford one year fourteen million. Um, you know they've got Ricky Romero in the minor leagues making eight million dollars a year, and mm-hmm. they can't afford to spend on the major league team. So it's just one of those things. And uh, for me, the payroll did go up over the course of the year just because like Jose Reyes' salary is backloaded and that kind of stuff. But if you want to win, sometimes you got to spend. And uh, it was an interesting thought to hear them say we want to win we want to win but we're not willing to pay for it this concludes part one of the 30 second timeout podcast for april 25th 2014 for more blue jays talk with mitchell davidson and more of the 30 second timeout podcast be sure to tune in to part two thanks for asking i'm fine how are you what brought you here